Before I begin today, I would like to lead us in a prayer of lament over the new findings at the Maryvale Residential School in Saskatchewan. God, our Father, we know you. We have experienced your great love for us. We are certain of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy to us in our sin. And we are certain of your saving love that has been extended to us in Christ. We are certain of the redeeming power and presence of your Holy Spirit among us, but our hearts hurt. We grieve over the news of more unmarked graves found near the Maryvale Residential School. We lament the deaths. We lament the separation of families. We lament the very existence of a program like this in our nation. We lament the families who never knew what happened to their children. We confess to you today that we struggle to comprehend a world where this kind of racially driven evil is perpetuated by people in the name of Jesus. We confess that we struggle to know how to respond, but we come to you. We pray for the generations of First Nations people who were impacted by the residential school program, that you might pour out your love upon them. We ask you that you would work miracles of forgiveness and reconciliation. We ask that the truth would come into the light of day where the healing can begin. We ask for justice for those who've been victimized. We ask for the end of the cycle of brokenness and hostility. We ask that many would trust in you, finding the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus, and that many would be saved. Come, Holy Spirit. Do a work in our midst. Shock us with your power and reveal to us your great love. Fill us with courage in the face of evil. Fill us with, fill us with passion for biblical justice. To those who suffer, give new hope in the place of despair. To those who are broken, give new joy in the place of mourning. To those who are confused, give peace in the midst of the chaos in their soul. God, we trust you. We know you are at work. In our pain, hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We will be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
See, over the last month and a half, we've been talking about the issue of idolatry and what we might think about the idols of our heart and and how we can dethrone the idols of our heart so that we might live free of the tyranny of their demands and free to enthrone Jesus once again as Lord of all of our lives. When we started this series, I quoted Brad Bigney when I said, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. And it's vital that we understand this or else we are blind to the way good things can become God things in our lives. Right? Because we know that these little gods, these idols, these idols of the heart, they always come and they approach us with the demands that we must meet they eventually begin to control our lives. Let me expand a little bit more on what I mean by idols of the heart by quoting Elise Fitzpatrick, who's been quoted again in this series of messages. She said, idols aren't just stone statues. No, idols are the loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in the place of the true God. They are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. Idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father in search of what we think we need. Our idols are our loves gone wrong. All those things we love more than we love Him. The things we trust for our righteousness or okayness. I want to highlight something that she says. She said they are the things that we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. And idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father. We need to note this. This is the severity of the issue in front of us today. And here's the problem. Idols of the heart are are hiding behind, or maybe it's better to say they're, they're functioning beneath so many of our persistent sin issues. And and here's what I know has happened for many people throughout this series of messages on idolatry. Talking about it week after week after week has started to surface some of those things in your own life, and and you're now seeing it for what it is, and you're now starting to ask the question. You're saying, now that I see this and I understand how this is actually hindering my life with God, what the heck am I supposed to do about it? Uh, Okay, Brett, thank you very much for helping us to expose and identify our idols. Now what? That's the question I want to try and answer today. If we were to sit down for a cup of coffee and you were to bring me some of the things that are frustrating you about your walk with God, how you maybe feel stuck in some pattern of sin or some cycle of challenge that you're walking through, some kind of idolatry of the heart where your affections of, with God and for God have been exchanged for the affections of something else that is preeminent and prominent in your life, and, and you're trying to work through this, Maybe you keep coming back to the same problems all the time and you can't seem to get out of the rut that you're in. What I'm going to share to you today is what I would share with you if we were having a cup of coffee. What I'm talking about today is the biblical pattern of change in the life of the Christian. And I want you to know this. I don't share this as an expert. I share this as a fellow beggar who has found where to get the fresh bread. I'm not talking to you about the way you can deal with the idols of your heart like I'm some sort of expert who travels around writing on a whiteboard all of the different things that you can think about on this. I'm I'm talking to you as a Christian who has had to confront the idols in my own life over and over again and labor in prayer and labor in counsel and labor in getting people to speak into my life so that God can change me and transform me into the man I know he's calling me to be. 
And I'm able to say, by God's grace, I'm not the man that I once was. I'm not yet the man I ought to be, but I know again by God's grace that I'm not yet the man I one day will be. And that's because I, I, I believe I have a biblical vision of what change looks like in the life of a human being. The biblical pattern of change in the life of a Christian is a process. It's not an event. The biblical pattern of change looks like dethroning the idols of your heart so you can re-enthrone Jesus. It looks like repenting of sin rather than trying to hide it. Biblical change looks like allowing the Holy Spirit to transform you rather than justifying why you're spiritually stuck. It looks like intentionally pursuing holiness rather than drifting off into compromise. Biblical change looks like pursuing God's plans and purposes for you in your life rather than, rather than settling for some sort of spiritual mediocrity. Okay, over this cup of coffee that we're now having, so that we can talk about the changes that you long for in your life, we're going to look at that in, in three points. We're going to talk about how you can change, why you would change, and how to change. We're going to talk about the fact that you can change. We're going to talk about why you want to change and how then to change. Okay, the first point, you can change. There's a wonderful book uh, by that title, You Can Change, by a guy named Tim Chester. And um, one time, Allison and I were getting ready to go on vacation, and as happens most of the time, but the preparation week before we're about to go away, just the two of us, and we're heading off, and she says, do you have any books that you think I should bring with me to read? And, and I said, yeah, definitely, there's a book. It's called You Can Change. Here you go. Now, you, you, you need to know, I'm not offering you marriage advice right now, but, but you better be really secure in your relationship with your beloved before you offer them a book called You Can Change to take with them on vacation. What I mean by you can change and what this book means by you can change is that you are free to change. Whether you're 16 or 66, whether you're feeling free as a bird today or you're feeling like you've got these invisible shackles that you're just walking in bondage on the wrists of your soul and you can't really break free, whether you're feeling free or shackled right now, I just know that you need to hear the truth of the gospel and that the truth of the gospel is you are free to change. I can hear you. I can, can hear the thoughts of some of the people I know within the body of Christ City. You say, can I really change? Maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe I'm too old. Maybe I'm too something else. Maybe I'm not enough of that or I'm too much of this. Maybe it's like this. I believe that she can change. I believe that he can change, but I'm not really sure that I can change. Yes, you can. In the kingdom of Jesus, there is no one too far gone. In the kingdom of Jesus, there's no relationship too broken. In the kingdom of Jesus, there is no issue too big. There's no mountain too tall, whatever you want to say. There's nothing that can stop you if you are in Christ. See, when I don't think I can change, what happens is I then settle for mediocrity. I settle for second best. When I really believe God has promised me so much more. You've got to believe that you can change. You are free to cast down your idols. You're free to grow in your holiness as you pursue Jesus. You're free to repent of sin and turn away from things that do not promote a flourishing godliness in your life. 
And you're not just free from sin and bondage. I want to be very clear that you're also free to pursue Jesus with all of your heart. In the scriptures, we are free from and we are free to. We are from, free from what we can give up and walk away from, but we are also free to what we can pursue. We're free from slavery to sin, but we're free to cultivate new, healthy spiritual disciplines. We are free from idolatry in the sense that we can cast them down and crush them up and cast them aside. But you're also free to pursue the gifts of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you can live a life of God-ordained purpose and joy and participate in what he's doing in the kingdom. You're free to pursue that in Christ. You can change. Let, let me show you how. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Listen, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is so important for us. You are free to change because Jesus has overcome. Your sin has been put to death. Jesus died for your sin. And you are alive to the things of God because Jesus rose from the dead. If you keep going in Romans chapter 6, I'm not going to take you there in the text, but if you open the Bible up for yourself and you keep going in the rest of the chapter, Romans chapter 6, you're going to see more and more of this distinction being made where it's really clear that for those of us who are in Christ, who are walking in relationship with him, that you are no longer slaves to sin. Verse 6. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, see, you're free, no longer enslaved, no longer in bondage. You're free from the bondage to sin. Again, later in Romans 6, it makes the point that you're free to love and serve Jesus with your whole heart. Do you see that? We're dead to sin and we're alive to God in Christ. Christ City, you can change. I don't know what excuse is going through your head right now. I don't know how many times you've tried, how many times you've hit the wall, how many times you're frustrated. I just want you to know you can change. Okay, I also want you to notice this isn't saying that we break free on our own. That we were all locked up and in bondage and we, we you know, it's as though we kind of break free on our own because we just do the right thing. Right? If we could do this on our own, then we wouldn't need a Savior. And Jesus' death on the cross would have been meaningless. No, no, the, the entire basis of your freedom from the enslavement you have to sin and idolatry is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that the power of sin is broken on the cross. 
And then and only then he appeals to have us make joyful use of that freedom that's been purchased for us by Jesus. So here's how we do it. We keep on considering that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. We are free from and we are free for. It's just like he said in verse 11, dead to sin, alive in Christ. Think of yourself as an inmate in a prison. Okay, this, this is not saying that if we try hard enough and we work at it long enough that we can devise a crafty form of escape from the shackles of sin. That's not what it's saying. It's telling us that in Christ we are transformed from the darkness of the prison cell to the light of the free, wo- uh, free world beyond the walls of the prison and the reach of the guards. That's what this is telling us. And I don't know about you, and I, don't, I just don't see many prisoners who've been graciously set free who then run back inside the prison and slam the cell shut because they want to be locked back inside again. I don't see many people saying that. See, they've been set free, which means they can change. This is saying that sin is your old master, that it was your master before you came to Christ. You don't need to obey the old master anymore. You're no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free. You don't need to answer the cries of that old idol that is demanding your attention and your worship. You're free from that bondage and you're free to pursue God. So yes, you can change. And some of you hear this and you're filled with hope and, and, and you hear what I'm saying and, and you want to change and you say, yes, I can change. How? That's one group of people. Another group of people are, are, are listening to this and you hear the message of you can change and you are honestly, if you're being honest with yourself, you're thinking, why? I'm pretty good right now. Why would I change? Okay, you can change. Let's talk about why change. Then we'll get to the how after. Why change? I actually think asking the why question is the right impulse. Um, You should definitely examine the motivation of your desire to change as a follower of Jesus. Okay, I I bring this up because it's an honest question that has several wrong answers. I'm going to discuss three that I think are the most prevalent, at least in my pastoral care. Three wrong answers to why you might want to change in your life. Number one, if you want to change so that God will finally accept you, I think you've missed the essence of the gospel. If you want to change so that you can prove yourself worthy to God, then I just want to gently say that, again, I think you've missed the core of of what Paul is saying here in the previous text and and, and beyond. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't save you because of anything impressive that you did, so there's nothing you can do to manufacture change in your own strength that would gain his approval in your life. Your approval is all wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus. Tim Chester in You Can Change said, we don't change so we can prove ourselves to God. We are accepted by God so we can change. God gives us a new identity, and this new identity is the motive and basis for our change. You've got to get the order correct. And asking the why question is, is very helpful to show us what we're truly believing about the nature of the gospel of Jesus. Okay, here's the second one. What if under the surface you hear the good news of you can change and, and when you ask yourself why you want to change, what you realize is that you want to change because you desire the approval of some other human being? Beloved church, I would, I would say, if that's the motivation of your desire to change, you're still in bondage because that's fear of man. 
It's idolatry. You've set the approval of someone else on the functional throne of your life, and what happens is you're now conforming to their ideal standard of who you should be instead of God's ideal standard of who you are in Christ. And in the end, it's a no-win game. See, when you're trying to gain somebody else's approval, they will set the agenda of what you have to do to gain it. But when you come to Jesus, you are received by the Father and approved, and you have a new identity in Christ because of what he has accomplished, and now you live into that new identity. Okay, the, the third one, really quick. You might want to change because you hate the consequences of your sin, not the sin itself. You hate the consequences of your sin, not the sin itself. This means we don't primarily want to pursue God and live a life of holiness. We're actually just looking for a little bit more ease and comfort. This kind of thing happens in relationships oftentimes where one person in the relationship is maybe living in a particular kind of way that is upsetting the other person in the relationship, whether it's friendships, marriage, parent, child, whatever that looks like. And you hate the consequence of your sin because it's bringing discomfort and animosity into your relationships, you say, I'm going to stop doing that or I'm going to change the way I act in that kind of context. And what happens is you can, you can do that in your own strength for a, a small period of time. But if that's your motivation on why you want to change, you just want to have more harmony in your life, I just want to say that, that the, the tap will run dry on your energy to keep doing that unless you go to the deeper issues of the heart. That can't be the right motivation to change because that's not a lasting change kind of motivation. If you want to change because you hate the consequences of your sin and not the sin itself, this is a problem. So think about it like this, and maybe it's anger in the relationship. Maybe you can bite your tongue for a while, but eventually that person you're in a relationship with is going to realize that you didn't really change the underneath the surface hardwired kind of setup in your whole system. You just maybe bit your tongue and closed your lips a little bit more often than you used to. And what's going to happen is when that all starts to come out again, it's going to be really hurtful to them, and now you're going to have all the animosity and a lack of harmony in the relationship. So you've got to go one layer deeper. The motivation for change cannot be the negative consequences of sin. The motivation for change must be, I want to kill the sin itself because that honors God. See, if, well, I think all three of those are really human-centered reasons to desire change in your life. And, and what I want to say is, God has offered you so much more. See, if you come to see what he is offering you, behold what he's presenting to you in the gospel, change becomes more compelling. And these compelling God-centered reasons, uh, I'm going to give you three that I think we should aim at in our lives that are helpful as we think about the why. This matters so much. If we get the why of our change wrong, then we will definitely have a different answer to the how. If we get the why of our change wrong, we'll definitely have a different answer to the how, and we're going to look at that in a minute. So why change? Um, God's glory, your joy, and leaning into the life of purpose and mission that he is inviting you into. God's glory, your joy, and leaning into the life and purpose of mission that he is inviting you into. God is glorified in you when you are an evidently transformed person. When it is evident that you have been changed and that God and God alone could have manufactured that in your life through the power of the gospel. Your joy is filled when you're walking in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit, free from the slavery of idolatry. 
The, the life of mission and purpose that God has invited you into, listen, it is the most exciting and fulfilling thing that you will experience on this side of heaven. Knowing that you can be used by God to make his fame and deeds known in the world, that you can be an instrument of justice and mercy, that you can be there in the front row seat of his kingdom coming in Vancouver as it is in heaven, that is compelling. I don't know how much better it gets than that. The blessing and the rewards of God, though, you got to hear me, are likely on the other side of your obedience. And the beautiful thing is God has made a way for you to step into it. Where he is glorified, your joy is full and you're participating in who he created you to be. Compelling God-centered reasons to desire change. You can change. Why you should change. And third, how. How to change. Look uh, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, what I want you to hear is in summary, this is an idolatry text. They worship something or someone else other than God. Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's he's speaking to the church there, and he is drawing a contrast between the way of the unbelieving world around them and the way of the church. It's what he's doing in this passage. Paul's saying, don't live like this anymore. Don't walk like them in the futility of their minds. This is referring to that natural tendency of human beings to use intellectual pride and to rationalize things and to find excuses to defend their way of being in the world. He calls it hard-hearted, callous blindedness, basically. He's saying it's the don't walk like them in the futility of the mind. This ties into Romans chapter 1, which we spent a whole week looking at a while back, where Romans chapter 1 talks about the practice of every kind of evil and the hardness of the heart and the darkened understanding and the alienated life of God and how there is the futility of the mind. He says their thinking is futile because it's based on serving worthless idols. Okay, keep going. Verse 20 starts with but. But that's not what you learned. Or, <clears throat> that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, just stop. Paul is saying that's them, and now here's you. It's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22 says, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, don't live like that. That's not the way of Jesus. He says, you've learned the way of Jesus. Therefore, put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self. 
But look carefully at the text with me because I want to show you where the power to change comes from, right? We're talking about how to change. This is where the power for that change comes from. This text is telling us something very encouraging, but you're going to need to hang with me just for a second in order to see it. Okay, Paul's contrasting the message they have received and believed about Jesus with the message that is believed by the world around them. He's drawing a contrast between us and them, so to speak, between them and not Jesus' people and us, Jesus' people. That's what he's writing to this church. So is this text about conversion, where you first come to Christ, where you first repent of your sin, where you first believe the gospel, or is this a text about the process of transformational change in your life? Which one is it? Is this a conversion text or a transformation in your life, kind of lifelong process of change text? The answer is yes. I think it's both. And that's why I think this is a very encouraging passage of scripture. Look at it again. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's, there's, there's a movement to this. It's not a sequence that you need to follow. You need to see that this is something that happens almost simultaneously in your life, but there is some intentionality to it. To put off your old self, well, certainly I did that when I first came to Christ, but, but that was 20 years ago. I'm still putting off the old self. Well, I, I was renewed in the spirit of my mind. I was no longer futile in my thinking alienated from the life of God. I I was no longer that. When I first came to Christ, when I was converted, I was renewed in the spirit of my mind. Absolutely. But, But I was renewed in the spirit of my mind this week, 20 years on. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Oh my gosh, I, I am clothed in the new nature of who I am in Christ. I put that on 20 years ago but I'm always putting that on as I change and grow. When I repent of sin, when I give myself to spiritual disciplines, I pursue the fruit of the Spirit. I pursue the gifts of the Spirit. I pursue the call of God in my life. I I desire to grow and be transformed more and more in my holiness. This text is certainly talking about conversion. This text is also talking about the ongoing process of change where we are growing in Christ. And here's why I say this is a very encouraging text for us to just be confronted with here. The same gospel that we believed that initially brought us into relationship with Jesus is the same gospel by which we're transformed as followers of Jesus. That's the good news. I think it's so important for us to see that believing the gospel is not a one-time event. It's not like a key that unlocks some kind of magical door into a new kingdom where you walk inside and go, I don't need that anymore. No, no, no. Believing the gospel certainly brings you into a new kingdom, but you continue to walk by the power of the gospel every step of the way as you're there dwelling with God and his people. Entering into the life of the kingdom of God and living a life full of the kingdom of God, a full life, a life that is full of joy and purpose and mission. Those are both empowered by the same truth of the gospel of Jesus. The biblical pattern of change is to put off, be renewed in your mind, and put on. And I just want you to see as we close out our series on idolatry that it's not doing better and trying harder as though you could fix this in your own strength. 
Okay? Doing better and trying harder is not the answer to manufacturing change in your life. The answer to living in obedience to God is not trying to change the external behavior and grit your teeth and focus harder and make rules that you put on top of the rules on top of the rules. That's not what we're aiming at. The answer to living free from idolatry is knowing that your sin has been atoned for and that you have received the new resurrection life of the gospel of Jesus. You've got that new identity that you're living out of. See, the same gospel that saves you gives you the power to change. This is the how of change in the scriptures. There is an intentional putting off and putting on, a repentance and a believing, a repentance and a focus on cultivating healthy spiritual practices, all of that, plus the renewal of the mind that comes from engaging God's word and spending time with him in prayer. Yes, all of that. You don't need behavior modification. You need the new identity you have in Christ. You need the newness of life that's offered through the resurrection of Jesus. And it's not a one-time event. Biblical change is a process. It will take your whole life, and it is entirely worth it. If you're with your house church today, then you can get ready to celebrate communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know that we are talking about something profound here when we're talking about receiving Christ in conversion and the biblical process of change. But really, one of the beautiful things we can do is tangibly celebrate the gospel of Jesus in the bread and the wine right now. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to celebrate communion with your group. Do it together as a group. Um, If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd say put that off for a moment um, because you need to consider what we're doing. See, the bread points us to the broken body of Jesus. His body was broken upon the cross when he was crucified and when he died in our place for our sin. He died to atone for our sin, to grant us forgiveness by taking upon himself all of our sin and dying the death that we deserve to die. His body was broken, so we take the bread. And then we take the cup, the the wine or the juice, and we're celebrating the truth that his blood was shed. And when it says his blood was shed, what we mean is that he died, that he really died. And we're celebrating the truth that it's through his death that we have life. So we take the body and the blood, the the bread and the wine, and we celebrate this truth of who Jesus is to us, that by faith we've come into relationship with him and we've received the salvation that he offers us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd say this is a wonderful time to commit your life to him. Let us know who you are, send us a message, whatever that looks like, and I'd love to celebrate communion with you for the very first time. All right, let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the truth of the gospel that saves and the truth of the gospel that transforms. Help us as we live into this as a community. Help us as we go through the difficult days we're living in that you, God, would continue to surface and reveal idols that we might put them to death and live in in finding true life and joy with you. We pray all of this in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen.